Hey everybody, welcome to the Taming the Shrew podcast. My name is Josh Borkowski. I'm a paramedic and one of the EMS educators here at the University of Cincinnati's Division of EMS. We're doing this podcast as one in a series of podcasts for National EMS Week in the United States, which is May 15th through the 21st of 2016, uh, as a way to provide some education and just sort of thank our EMS colleagues uh, throughout the nation, throughout the world, really. So we've reached out to a, a number of specialties and under UC Health uh, for this week. One that uh, obviously stepped up in a big way is our partners from uh, UC Air Care. So we're joined by two of our flight physicians today, Dr. Bill Hinckley, who is our Air Care Medical Director, and Dr. Andrew Latimer, who is the Resident Assistant Medical Director for Air Care. Welcome, gentlemen. Thanks, Josh. Good Thanks. to be here. Thanks for having us. Awesome for you guys to take the time. So our topic today is going to be uh, EMS stroke care. Dr. Hinkley, why don't you start us off? I mean, the, the assessment tool that everybody knows, I think, at least in the Cincinnati area, because we're a little bit, little bit biased here, but is the Cincinnati pre-hospital stroke scale. So you've got the three components of that. Why don't you kind of walk me through those three components and some of the pearls of uh, what EMS provider should be looking for? What, so you're not using the LA pre-hospital stroke scale? I am not, sir. I use the oh. uh, Cincinnati stroke All right, scale. I'm with you. If that's okay with you. I'm with you. Cool. <laughs> All right, we'll ju do this quickly because I'm uh, I, I'm of the belief that most of the people listening to this podcast are going to be pretty familiar with this. But component number one, facial droop. Um, you can either have the patient smile or have them bare their teeth. Personally, I do feel that the bearing of the teeth uh, is a little more likely uh, to to be helpful. It seems to me that that some people just have a crooked smile at baseline even without a stroke. So that could give you a false positive, whereas you're more likely uh, to, to see them be actually symmetric if they bare their teeth. So uh, that's my preference. Now, the, the next component is arm drift. And this is one where uh, there's, I, I, I do see folks uh, at times do this incorrectly. So the big key is when you have the patient hold their arms extended with their elbows extended, you really want them to have their palms up toward the ceiling uh, as if they are uh, holding a, a tray of food or a pizza box up. So you're not just looking to see if the arm drops toward their lap, which would be positive, but you are also looking to see if that hand, which starts out supinated or palm up, starts to drift toward being palm down. Uh, so in other words, if that does happen, if the hand goes from palm up to palm down, even if the arm stays up, that it, that would still be positive. And then finally, speech. That one's fairly straightforward. You just ask them to, to repeat a sentence. Uh, I usually do the quick round fox jumps over the lazy dog, but whatever sentence you, you want. And you're looking not only for complete aphasia, where the patient can't say anything, but slurring of the words or them repeating inappropriate words. Excellent. So Dr. Latimer, you know, kind of beyond that, what else can EMS providers do or what are you, what would you recommend for an, from an assessment standpoint? The big thing that uh, I wanted to talk in regards to this, talk about, is in regards to kind of the severity of the stroke symptoms. There's a bunch of research going on in EMS medicine right now around the country that's not quite ready for prime time. But the gist of it is that you have strokes and then you have really big strokes these really big blockage type ischemic strokes that we're talking about here, these really big blockages termed large vessel occlusion strokes, a lot of these patients don't do well and don't do all that well with TPA, which is that clot-busting medicine that we're really trying to treat them with. And there's pretty good data on this. Now, there's a lot of research going into how we can best take care of these patients, and kind of the trend right now is to get them to intra-arterial techniques, mechanical thrombectomy or catheter-directed TPA, 
And empirically, we've had a lot of success with that in the Cincinnati area. Patients with these large vessel occlusions doing surprisingly well. So the key is to get these patients to these comprehensive stroke, comprehensive stroke centers where that can be done. So nationwide, again, there's a lot of research being done to evaluate how we can identify these patients in the pre-hospital setting so that providers in the pre-hospital setting know, you know, hey, this isn't the person you take to the neighborhood primary stroke center. This is somebody we should drive the extra 20 minutes and get them to the comprehensive stroke center because they're going to end up getting transferred there anyway. Uh, with air care, we fly a lot of patients from primary stroke centers where they've gotten TPA for these large vessel occlusion strokes that are going to need this mechanical thrombectomy if they're in the certain, you know, these certain time windows. Again, the specifics of this I'm not ready to kind of talk about because we're still working on some of that and this is something that's going to come down the pipeline. My reason for bringing this up today is if you have these patients you're, you suspect have a large blockage type ischemic stroke, so patients that have a complete hemiparesis, you know, completely paralyzed arm and leg on one side, facial droop on one side, gaze deviation, the really big strokes, these are patients that when we're able to come out with a decision tool for pre-hospital providers, they're gonna meet that large vessel occlusion criteria. And, and I would implore you guys to consider taking those patients directly to a comprehensive stroke center, because that will save them literally hours of brain time to get them to that definitive care that they need, which really is intra-arterial, these endovascular mm -hmm. techniques. There's gonna be a lot more coming down the pipeline in the next three to five years regarding this, and it may change how pre-hospital stroke care is practiced, but uh, just definitely something to think about. It's worth that extra 20 minutes with these patients to get them to that comprehensive stroke center if you can. So, awesome. it, so it sounds like you're talking about not the sort of stroke where you're like, well, maybe this could be a stroke. You're talking about the one where your, your little brother knows it's a stroke. Absolutely. The big, obvious, totally paralyzed on one side sort of strokes. Again, those could be bleeds. Those could be a variety of other things. Sometimes that can be hard to differentiate in the field. But a comprehensive stroke center's emergency department would be able to care for those patients as well. Uh, but really, if it is that big vessel occlusion stroke, they're probably going to need that endovascular therapy and getting them, spending them 20 minutes on the front end, getting them to those facilities can save them hours of transfer time and can make a really big difference in these patients' outcomes. Excellent. And just to be absolutely clear, when you talk about that, use that terminology, primary stroke center and comprehensive stroke center, that's similar to what I think most EMS providers will be familiar with is the trauma verification status. So hospitals that have that designation, it's a set criteria determined by, I, I'm not familiar with the organization, but that, that's a, there's a rigid criteria that uh, those hospitals have met. Uh, maybe we could talk about some of the, you know, just vague differences between those two types of facilities and, and what that process, uh, what process those hospitals go through. Yeah, and that's, depending on what area you're in, that's something worth, uh, worth looking up um, for these accreditation center. Uh, it's done through the Joint Commission. Every region has their own identified uh, primary stroke centers and uh, comprehensive stroke centers. Excellent. So when you have those those big strokes, I mean the patient that has a you know, large you know, obvious deficit, one of the things that has been hammered into the minds of EMS providers uh, over most of my career and maybe longer than that is this idea of you know nailing down the symptom onset of when this all started and so dr hinkley you, you want to talk about how that how we need to kind of maybe change our thinking in that area there there is no maybe about it we need to strike onset from our lexicon when it comes to stroke because what matters is not the onset what matters what is going to determine whether or not that patient ultimately gets tpa therapy or not 
is what their last normal time was. The last time that we know for sure that this patient was their normal self. And where this really comes into play is when people wake up from a nap or from uh, sleeping overnight with symptoms. The time that they woke up is irrelevant. Now, that may change with future research, but right now, the time that a stroke team doc is gonna decide uh, to base their decision on is when we know they were, were normal. So in other words, uh, the last time that somebody saw them acting like their normal self. So we, we really need to stop asking ourselves, to stop asking patients, family members, witnesses, when did these symptoms start? And instead start asking, what is the last time you saw them and you are sure that they were their normal self? And if, if they can't give you a time, then you can start obviously asking about what was going on at the time. Were you watching TV? What was on TV? What uh, was at the end of the show or the beginning of the show? Uh, do you have a, a, a text or a phone call that occurred at that time that we can uh, look on your smartphone to figure out what time it was? Uh, but yeah, it's all about last normal time, also known as last known well time. When we start using the term onset, that leads to a lot of confusion and fear in the hearts of the emergency doc or the stroke team doc about giving TPA. Uh, so just don't even use the term anymore. Excellent. And I think that's an area where this is the one time as an EMS provider that you really need to be assertive. Uh, and not just documenting that last known normal and the last known well, but nailing down that bystander or family member, whoever is giving you that information and not just documenting it in your EMS report, but getting that person either to the hospital or getting a cell phone number or some contact for the emergency department physician for the stroke team so that that can really be verified and nailed down. Is that, that correct? Absolutely. It's I, I jump up and down with joy when EMS brings with their suspected stroke patient the witness uh, who can provide me with a lot of confidence about what that last normal time is. Uh, it doesn't happen super often right now, but an extra couple of minutes at the scene to convince that person to come along, or if you can't do that, to at least spend the extra time with them so that you feel super confident about what that last normal time was can make all the difference. But yes, please bring them along if you can twist their arm to do it. On top of that, having a witness available, a lot of times these witnesses are family members, a husband, a wife, a daughter, something along these lines that in, in some cases are the decision maker. That can be extraordinarily helpful when you're making decisions about administering TPA um, in the setting of a patient who, say, has aphasia, can't communicate, can't talk. That could be extraordinarily helpful in facilitating that process quickly when a patient uh, is identified to have an ischemic stroke in the ED and as a candidate for that therapy. Perfect. So, Dr. Latimer, from there then, what else should EMS providers, uh, what are their priorities in terms of managing this, these patients and what should they expect when they arrive at the ED? Yeah, I think uh, another big question that always comes up when we give lectures on this and talk about this is in regards to airway management. A lot of people can get really worried about airway in these patients. In true ischemic stroke, even really big ones, it's rare in my experience that we end up having to intubate these patients. I think it's pretty uncommon. Um, true ischemic strokes, obviously big old bleeding type ICH strokes, uh, intracerebral hemorrhages, those patients can do terrible, really not protect their airway and, and can require intubation in the pre-hospital setting. But I think it's pretty uncommon for a true, true ischemic stroke to require an airway. And my one pearl about this is take it pretty seriously when you're considering a patient who may be an ischemic stroke and you're considering taking their airway, especially if you're a squad that has RSI capabilities. 
taking a patient like that and paralyzing them takes away their exam. Um, even intubating them when they're not paralyzed or, or having a paralytic such as succinylcholine wear off, they're likely to be sedated in some way, shape, or form, or should be uh, with medications you've given them. And that really can trash the neuro exam. And the neuro exam in the hospital is going to be what everybody's going to base their decision to administer TPA on. So a patient that's been given rocuronium, a prolonged paralytic, um, a bunch of benzodiazepines so that they could tolerate an airway, you've really taken away their exam, which can make TPA difficult or impossible. So really take that responsibility seriously. There are patients that will need that, um, and if that's the case, that's the case. But really that's a big decision to make, and, and you want to consider the ability to get an exam in the ER for this very powerful therapy um, very seriously. Just to put that in perspective, in 16 years in the ER, taking care of hundreds of ischemic strokes, I only recall intubating one of them. So I'd second that. It's very rare that it's necessary. So obviously some of the other things that we kind of always do in EMS, uh, we obviously we're going to trend vital signs, we're going to get that EKG, uh, get a blood glucose in these patients because they are going to be altered and we want to know if they're they're altered because they're hypoglycemic. That's something that's uh, rapidly fixable. Just doing a good thorough assessment on these patients as well, uh, establishing IV access, you know, anything else that you would recommend or anything else you know that you, you want to see as an ED physician really makes you happy when you see that stroke patient walk through or come through the door with the, with the EMS. Uh, yeah, everything you just mentioned, and specifically with regard to the IV access, getting a 20-gauge or bigger in the uh, right AC can be very helpful because these days these patients are not only getting non-contrast head CTs, but also very commonly getting CT angiograms. And if uh, obviously many patients have difficult IV access, but when able, if, if you can get a 20 gauge or bigger in the right AC so that we don't have to spend any time getting access before getting that CT angiogram, that can, um, that can save us a lot of time. Uh, so that would be ideal. And the, the other thing that is, is so obvious it almost goes without saying, but shouldn't, giving the accepting hospital advance notification sure. before arrival super important so that we can gear up that CAT scanner, not put that uh, that patient with uh, four days of belly pain who's really stable on, on the table when we could leave it open for your stroke patients. And, uh, and also many times we can gear things up to actually facilitate you actually bringing that potential stroke patient as opposed to bringing them into the resuscitation bay, taking them straight to the CT scanner and doing our handoff of care there that can save several minutes as well. So we spent a lot of time talking about, you know, stroke is sort of a time-dependent uh, illness. With that said, you know, it, obviously as a flight physician uh, and air care medical director, uh, you're involved in a lot of time-dependent illnesses, trauma, STEMI, those types of things. Uh, what are your thoughts on uh, flights for stroke patients, particularly scene flights for uh, suspected stroke? The scene stroke. So surprisingly, I am not as big of a fan of this as you might think. Clearly, I am somebody who believes that uh, helicopters can save lives and often do and that minutes matter. But in terms of actually looking at the evidence, the, the people who strongly argue for scene stroke uh, response, the paper that they always hold up it came out of the journal Stroke published in 2003, which was a study by Silliman 
uh, out of Florida. And basically they looked at 111 uh, scene stroke patients that were flown in the Jacksonville area. And this paper is always held up as uh, why scene stroke flights can be, mm -hmm. can be very helpful and successful. But if you really look at the numbers, out of those 111 patients, 18 of them got TPA, or 16%, which means that 84% of the patients did not and would have done, in all likelihood, the same uh, if, if they had come by ground. So I don't think there is uh, a ton of, of evidence. Now, granted, that was 13 years ago, and maybe mm -hmm. numbers would be different now, but it does mirror our experience here at AirCare in that very often when we do get called for, for scene stroke response, it turns out either not to be a stroke right. or uh, when you really do get the, the details on the last normal, they're outside the window. So we should, as EMS providers, be, be really good at stroke assessment and be, be aware that strokes can be subtle. And, uh, you know, so if you do just have that pronator drift uh, or you've got a, a, a little bit of dysarthria or mild aphasia, that that may well be a stroke. But those ones where you are on the fence, even if, even if you're, you practice in a very rural location, I do not advocate calling a helicopter, especially if you are in a region like Cincinnati, where if that patient is taken by ground to a community hospital, uh, there, there still is the Cincinnati Stroke Team that can either respond by telemedicine or in person and facilitate that person getting TPA if it's indicated. If, on the other hand, we are talking about one of these, these strokes that are so large vessel, that are so obvious that your little brother could diagnose it with no medical training, and it would clearly save time to get that patient to a comprehensive stroke center like you see, those are the ones where I do think it would be reasonable uh, to, to call for air care. Uh, but these ones where you're on the fence, you know, and Latimer, I'm sure you will agree, when a, when a stroke patient or a potential stroke patient shows up in our SRU, oftentimes, even for 20, 25 minutes, we're still on the fence as to whether or not this is a stroke. And that's under the bright lights of the hospital where we've got, you know, every possible resource. So we fully recognize how tough it can be in the EMS setting to figure out, is this a stroke or not? And those, it's good in those patients to maintain that suspicion that it may be a stroke and treat them appropriately, but those ones where you're on the fence are not the ones where I think the patient would benefit from a helicopter. You know, uh, speaking frankly, it is a, uh, a significant cost to the healthcare system and uh, potentially to the patient and their insurance provider. And so we, we want to utilize it in cases where we can really make a difference. So I, I think that we should only consider scene strokes for large vessel. Your little brother could make the diagnosis and it will clearly save time to get the patient to a comprehensive stroke center. Yeah, I completely agree. And I, and I think um, I think once we get some pre-hospital large vessel occlusion stroke identifier scale like a large vessel right, occlusion right. scale out here which as I had discussed a bunch of a bunch of different groups are working on right now. Once we get something like that out there and validated it's accepted, we may be able to collect some data on that and hems and, and in helicopter transport, but uh, like Bill's saying, I, I completely agree with with his sentiments. Well, I think that wraps up a uh, great discussion on pre-hospital st stroke care. Uh, the last thing that I would ask each of you gentlemen, and we're asking all of our guests on the uh, podcast for EMS Week, but especially you two gentlemen who have, 
who have dedicated and will in the future continue to dedicate a significant portion of your uh, medical careers to pre-hospital medicine. What just general takeaway message do you have for our uh, EMS listeners? What you do matters. What you guys do in the field, how you treat the patients and decisions you make with patient destination and care matters. And it, it really makes a difference in patient outcome, and especially in the, the subject that we're talking about today. So I have seen the looks that you guys get sometimes uh, when you show up from charge nurses, from accepting ER docs, maybe I've even been guilty myself. But certainly as a guy who is, who is out there, you know, three, four times a week practicing pre-hospital medicine, I, I fully recognize the challenges that, that we're all under out there. And uh, so the quote that sums it up best is uh, Teddy Roosevelt. And he said this in 1910, and it completely applies to what you guys do every day. So Roosevelt said, it's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man or woman who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes up short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Thank you guys for doing what you do. Awesome. Thank you, gentlemen. I enjoyed the discussion. Right on. Thanks, Josh. Take care. All right. Thanks, everybody.